Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. Well, I say I love all things tech, but today I'm going to talk about three different disasters involving nuclear power facilities, and I don't really love that. It's a very serious subject. Also, uh, I am coming down with a cold or a sinus infection or something, and I mentioned this in the last episode. It is even more true as I sit here now, one hour after I recorded that last episode, and I can feel my body falling apart. So I apologize if I sound particularly uh, wonky, but I don't want to suggest that I'm covering these topics in order to scare people away from the possibilities of using nuclear power to generate electricity. I think if you implement nuclear power correctly and responsibly, which includes securing a long-term storage facility for spent nuclear fuel, it can be a viable method to generate electricity. But it would be dishonest to suggest there are not significant risks involved. And the three stories I'm going to cover today illustrate that fact. So we're going to start with the Three Mile Island accident. We're going to go in chronological order of when they happened. So Three Mile Island is the earliest. It is also the worst nuclear power accident to happen in the United States. But there's an interesting side to that, and we'll get to that. So Three Mile Island is a nuclear power facility. It's located near Middleton, Pennsylvania. And at the time of the accident, it had two water reactors, meaning it was using light water as the uh, coolant. Uh, TMI-1, TMI stands for Three Mile Island, not too much information, and TMI-2. Now, TMI-1 had been in operation since 1974. TMI-2 came online a couple of years later. And then on March 28, 1979, that TMI-2 nuclear reactor experienced a partial meltdown. Now, a meltdown happens when the heat inside a reactor core builds beyond the melting point of the nuclear fuel that's arranged in rods inside the nuclear core. Reactors use a combination of things like coolant and moderators and control rods to maintain the rate of nuclear reactions. And by controlling the rate of nuclear reactions, you then, by extension, control the reactor core temperature. The more reactions there are, the higher the temperature goes, the slower the reactions are, the lower you can make the temperature. And if you actually insert control rods all the way through your um, bundles, the bundles being where the fuel rods are, then you will absorb enough neutrons to stop the reaction overall. Uh, Keep in mind, these are sustained nuclear reactions where a heavy atom splits apart And one of the things it shoots off are high-speed neutrons. And if another heavy atom of that same type, like uranium-235, for example, uh, absorbs that incoming neutron, it too will split. And so once you start the reaction, it can sustain itself if you have enough uranium-235 in the mixture, the critical mass. So if this happens, if these reactions keep on happening and they increase in uh, rate, to the point where the temperature has grown beyond the melting point of the fuel, the fuel starts to melt down, this is a big problem. 
At 4 a.m. on March 28, 1979, something went wrong at Three Mile Island. Now, to understand what happened, it helps to get a general understanding of that reactor's design. So you've got the nuclear side of the system and the non-nuclear side. The nuclear side consists of the nuclear reactor, which has the fuel, which was uranium-235, and it has the control rods, it has the coolant in it. Uh, the coolant is, is water, but the coolant is water under pressure. Uh, so it's a pressurized system. The water can circulate through the core, through the rest of the system to a heat exchanger. I'll more on that in a second. And then uh, after it goes through the heat exchanger, some of the, the heat has been pulled away from the coolant. It continues to circulate, goes back into the core, heats up again, and it's kept under pressure so that way the coolant doesn't boil off. Because if you don't have, you know, if you don't keep it under pressure, then some of that water would boil off into steam and that would make your whole system less efficient and also would create problems when you're trying to pump the water through that side. So that's the nuclear side. Then uh, you have the non-nuclear section. That's a secondary water system, a secondary loop of water. The uh, water flows into a steam generator, essentially a boiler, and that is on the other side of that heat exchange that's on the nuclear side. So the coolant from the nuclear side, which is superheated water that's under pressure, transfers heat through the heat exchanger. The heat exchanger transfers heat to the steam generator, which boils water off from this second closed loop. So the two loops are not connected. And then that steam goes on to drive a, a steam turbine, which generates electricity, and then uh, goes through some cooling process to condense back into water and go back through the system again. So the important thing to remember is that these are two closed systems that do not overlap. So the, the, uh, the water that's being used to turn into steam and turn the steam turbines never has any contact with the nuclear fuel. It is just heated by this heat exchange. That, and uh, the other water, the coolant water, that's the one that's circulating through the nuclear reactor core. Well, that Monday in March, there was a malfunction in that secondary non-nuclear water system. And that prevented the water from circulating properly. Uh, now, the reactions in the reactor core continued, but there was no way for the coolant to pass heat to that secondary system, right? It could not pass heat through the heat exchanger to the secondary system. There was nothing to carry that heat away. And without anything to carry the heat away, it meant the temperature of the reactor's coolant began to rise, so the reactor core's temperature began to rise. The actual plant automatically shut down the reactor because it detected that this was happening. It, it saw that the temperature was rising. So as a safety measure, it shut down. That's a good thing. Then a pressure relief valve on the pressurizer on the nuclear side. So where the coolant gets pressurized so that it doesn't boil off, there's a safety valve there that opens up in the case of uh, temperatures rising too high in order to let out a little pressure. And it's supposed to open for about 10 seconds and then close. So that way it releases some pressure, it closes, everything is fine. Uh, and the, the steam it releases, because, you know, you're talking about water that has been in contact with the nuclear reactor core, 
all of that is still contained within the facility. It's not like it's being vented out into the wilderness and suddenly you've got Bambi with eight heads or something. That doesn't happen. But what it's supposed to do is have that valve shut after about 10 seconds, and the valve didn't shut. It stayed open. But the instrumentation in the control room indicated that the valve had shut. So the workers at Three Mile Island were working under incorrect information. They saw that everything on the nuclear side appeared to be fine once this venting process was over, and then the valve had shut and everything should be good to go. But that valve was open, so the reactor coolant continued to escape the reactor. It continued to boil off into steam, and that began to drain the reactor coolant. Uh, And that meant that the reactor core was losing coolant and residual decay heat was starting to build up and the core would be damaged by this because once the coolant drains enough, then the reactor is able to, the the uranium inside the reactor is able to have these reactions with uh, more regularity and the temperature will grow very, very quickly because of that. To make matters worse, the employees assumed that the coolant in the core was remaining at the right levels. They did not have an easy way to monitor how much water was actually in the reactor core. Now, the plant, it had a better idea of what was going on. The automated systems had detected this problem, and so the automated systems spring into action and begin to inject water at high pressure into the reactor in order to replace the coolant that was being lost with the open valve. Now, at this point, the employees still thought the valve was closed. Cooling water entered the pressure riser in the nuclear reactor coolant system. So the employees couldn't see how much water was going into the reactor core. They didn't have the instrumentation to detect that. But they did see, they had instrumentation to detect how much water was in the pressurizer. Because if the pressurizer had too much water in it and attempted to add more pressure to the system it could cause a rupture, which would be a really bad thing, right? So the employees are looking at this figure and they're seeing it go up and up and up. And they start to think, oh no, something's gone wrong. For some reason, the automated systems are pouring more water into the reactor and the pressurizer is getting over overloaded with water. So we need to shut down that water. They did not realize that that valve was still open and that coolant was still boiling off. So they were working under incorrect information. Now, that allowed steam to form inside the reactor system in general. So the mixture of water and steam in the system, which was supposed to be just high-pressure, high-temperature water, was giving the coolant pumps problems when they were trying to pump the liquid through the system. That steam was causing issues. It was making the pumps start to vibrate. And that could have caused massive damage to the plant, so the employees shut down the pumps. The reactor core no longer had sufficient coolant, the level was too low, and it was no longer circulating. So the fuel rods got hotter and hotter without sufficient coolant and partially melted. That introduced radioactive material into the water itself. Before, the radioactive material was more or less contained, and the water would go past it, but not You know, it's not like the water was soaking up radioactive isotopes or something. But now you had fuel melting off and falling into the water itself. Now the water actually is carrying radioactive material. At 6.22 in the morning, keep in mind this started at 4 a.m., 
employees were able to finally close a blocked valve that was between the pressurizer and that open relief valve. So they were able to take care of that. They found that problem. And so that managed to stop the loss of coolant, but the coolant system inside the reactor was now partly filled with steam and steam from water that had contact with radioactive material. So this was very concerning. Eventually, the operators were able to condense that steam into water and they were able to inject more water into the system and restore the core to proper temperatures. They also captured several of the radioactive gases that were coming from the reactor. They, they would vent these gases from the reactor, but they vented it into trapping systems. It was all meant to go from the reactor into compressors that would then send this radioactive gas into uh, a tank called the makeup tank, uh, then from the makeup tank, it would be compressed to move into gas decay tanks. These are special containers designed to hold radioactive gases. If all of that had worked, yes, this still would have been a disaster in the sense that things had gone wrong, but radiation would have been contained. In the process of sending it along this chain, some of the compressors leaked, and some of that gas got released into the environment. That gas also had to pass through several HEPA filters, which removed most of the radionuclides. So most of the heavier radioactive materials, in fact, all the heavy radioactive materials were all caught. But some radioactive noble gases passed through those filters. Those gases had radionuclides with a very short half-life, and the gases themselves were biologically inert. So it wasn't like organisms were going to soak up those gases. They didn't interact with them. So it wasn't an environmental catastrophe. It's still not great to say radioactive gas escaped our, our facility, but at least you could say, but this radioactive gas does not interact with the environment in any way. So we should be fine. So in fact, numerous independent health studies and environmental studies showed no real evidence of ill effects from this incident. So it was a bad accident. It should not have happened. But the safety measures that were in place in the event of catastrophic failure appeared to hold up pretty well. The accident revealed enormous gaps in technology and training, but the safety measures managed to hold in place. But the communication of the event caused a great deal of distress and panic, understandably so. So the cleanup process for TMI-2, because this radiation got leaked inside the facility, it took more than a decade and cost nearly a billion dollars. While the impact to the region around the plant was minimal, inside the plant was a different story. You had a lot of surfaces that had to be de decontaminated. The water in the system had to be thoroughly processed and decontaminated. Uh, the damaged fuel in the reactor had to be retrieved and then stored. Uh, TMI-1, the other reactor, was actually offline during this accident. It was shut down. It was undergoing refueling. It would end up remaining offline during an investigation led by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and would come back online in October 1985. So TMI-2 was offline, but TMI-1 did come back into service. In 2017, the Exelon Corp, uh, Corporation, which then owned Three Mile Island, said that without action from the state of Pennsylvania, operations at TMI-1 would end in 2019, so next year. TMI-1 is licensed to operate until 2034, but it is not economically feasible to do so under the current climate, according to Exelon Corporation. 
Three Mile Island was the worst nuclear power disaster in U.S. history, but no one died as a result of Three Mile Island, and there were no harmful effects that could be pointed to Three Mile Island. So while it was bad and never should have happened, it could have been much worse, and it pales in comparison to some of the other disasters. So we're going to look at one of those in just a second, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. From Pennsylvania in 1979, we now travel to the Ukraine in 1986. Near the border between Ukraine and Belarus is Chernobyl, the site of a terrible nuclear disaster. The name Chernobyl has become synonymous with concepts like radiation and nuclear meltdowns. So what exactly happened at Chernobyl? Well, the short answer is that undertrained staff working at a poorly designed Soviet nuclear power plant caused a massive catastrophe in one of the four reactors that directly resulted in the deaths of at least 30 people over the course of a few weeks. Initially, 237 people received a diagnosis of acute radiation syndrome, or ARS. That number would be reduced to 134 once those cases were confirmed, but that really doesn't tell us much about what actually happened, right? So to understand what happened at Chernobyl, it helps to understand the difference in the design of that power plant compared to, say, the Three Mile Island designed. So this design was called the RBMK-1000, and I am not about to attempt to pronounce the words that RBMK stands for, because my Russian is just as bad as all my other pronunciations, which you guys know is uniformly terrible. But the meaning in English, if you were to translate those Russian words, is high-power channel reactor. And the RBMK design used water as a coolant and graphite as a moderator, although water was also a moderator. So that is, the moderators, they help absorb neutrons, and that controls the rate of nuclear reactions, as I mentioned in the previous section. The RBMK also had boron carbide control rods that would do that as well. So if you were to insert the boron carbide control rods all the way into the uh, into the reactor core, you would shut down reactions because you would be absorbing all the neutrons that were being given off and the reaction would not be able to sustain itself. So you would no longer have uh, nuclear power that way. But one thing the RBMK design did not have was a heat exchanger. It did not have these two closed loops like Three Mile Island did. So instead, it used one loop for water. The water that was the coolant for the actual reactor core was the same water that would get turned into steam, go through a steam turbine, go through a cooling process, condense back into water, and go back into the system. So it was a very different approach from Three Mile Island. Uh, the water would boil within that reactor design. So you remember Three Mile Island, that was bad when the coolant was boiling off and steam was introduced into the system because the cooling pumps had, had trouble pumping the water with steam in it. The Soviet version depended upon having steam inside the system. So uh, you needed it to work this way to generate power the way the Soviets had intended. 
but it did introduce another problem with the RBMK-1000, which is that you have an issue called positive void coefficient. So water, like graphite, can absorb neutrons, so it can act as a bit of a moderator, not just a coolant. So water can help cool a core, but it can also absorb some of those neutrons that are being given off, and thus help with the rate of nuclear reaction. Liquid water does this much better than steam does. So the more steam you have in your mixture, the less capable the water is to absorb those neutrons. And we call the little steam bubbles in the water supply voids in the nuclear power biz. So as the number of steam bubbles grows, the neutron-absorbing capability of the water decreases, and since sustained nuclear reactions depend upon nuclear fuel absorbing neutrons, that means you get more reactions as the positive void coefficient increases. So the more steam bubbles are in the water, the more neutrons are going to get absorbed by other atoms of uranium-235, and the more reactions you're going to get as a result, and the more heat you get. The Soviet design depended upon that process. The control rods could be inserted into the pressurized tubes that contained the nuclear fuel rods and shut down a reaction if things got out of hand. Now with Chernobyl, the process got out of hand, big time. So first, it became a cycle that fed upon itself. The nuclear reactions would heat up the coolant water and start to convert some of that water into steam. Steam bubbles or voids began to form. That reduced the capability of the water in the system to absorb neutrons, and that increased the rate of nuclear reactions within the core, which meant the core got hotter, which meant it heated up the water even more, which meant it increased the number of voids, which meant that even fewer neutrons were absorbed. So you see how this very quickly becomes a problem. On April 25th, 1986, Reactor 4 at the Chernobyl facility was beginning to shut down. It was getting ready for a scheduled maintenance and refueling. This was totally routine. But before it was to shut down, it was going to go through a testing procedure on the following day, on April 26th. Uh, and that test was to see how long the reactor would be able to generate steam and thus spin turbines in the event of a main electrical power supply loss. So they were going to simulate losing power at this facility. And they were going to see how long can this reactor continue to generate steam and turn this turbine, even if the power is lost to the reactor itself. So to conduct that test on the 26th, back on the 25th, operators started to disable automatic shutdown features. And when you hear about shutting down automatic shutdown features, that should raise some pretty big alarm flags in your, in your head. You should be thinking, that doesn't sound like a good idea. And in fact, it wasn't. So the operator went to shut down the reactor by inserting the control rods into the core. And for some reason or another, that action, telling the, the, the ar control arms to insert those control rods, caused a power surge and the hot fuel in the reactor began to fragment. Water began converting into steam at an accelerated rate, and as I mentioned, that meant the water was less efficient at absorbing neutrons, so the reaction began to accelerate. The production of steam began to increase, and that increased the pressure inside the system so much that the pressure 
actually partially detached the steel cover plate on top of the reactor. That steel cover plate weighed 1,000 tons. That's how much pressure was inside this reactor. Enough pressure to displace, at least partially, 1,000 tons of steel. Worse, when this cover plate became partially dislodged, it, it wedged the control rods in such a way that they could not insert completely into the pressure tubes. So the control rods were stuck. They couldn't go all the way in and thus shut down the nuclear reaction. They had only reached about the halfway mark. So the nuclear reaction was continuing because there was the control rods couldn't absorb those extra neutrons. The buildup of steam reached catastrophic levels and there was an explosive rupture which released nuclear material into the atmosphere. Seconds later, another explosion followed, and this one flung out superheated graphite and nuclear fuel flying out from the facility. The general consensus is that the second explosion happened after hydrogen gas, which had been generated from the reactions in the core, ignited from those high temperatures. The explosion killed two of the workers at Chernobyl outright. The hot material started numerous fires in the area because Chernobyl's in the middle of a forest. And so the forest started catching fire and that helped distribute radioactive material further into the atmosphere and the general environment. And some of the radioactive elements included iodine-131 and cesium-137. Both of those pose significant dangers to the public in the region. Uh, Iodine-131 has a relatively short half-life of just a few days. Cesium-137 is like a decade, or 30 years, rather. So you've got 30 years half-life for cesium-137, a few days for iodine-139. So it became a very dangerous uh, mixture. And winds were carrying radioactive materials pretty far away, like little radioactive particles flying way up in the atmosphere. It started to go as far as across Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, even into Scandinavia. Many people at the site were exposed to massive amounts of radiation in a short amount of time, and within three weeks, 28 people died from radiation poisoning. Around 116,000 people in a 30-kilometer radius around the facility were relocated by May 14th, but around 1,000 of them would secretly kind of return to the area on the QT in order to go back home, another 220,000 people would eventually be relocated over the course of the next few years. Now, independent studies found that the populations around Chernobyl do not appear to have had abnormally high incidence of cancer, with the exception of thyroid cancer. Thyroid cancer numbers shot up. Thyroid cancer, fortunately, if caught early, is very treatable. Uh, But it still obviously is a big concern. The thyroid cancer was an outlier, but they did not see a rise in incidence in stuff like leukemia. And some people say perhaps some of those cases of thyroid uh, cancer, they might have already been an issue before the Chernobyl disaster, but because you suddenly had all these doctors in the area specifically looking for problems. They were finding them more frequently. So not that the Chernobyl disaster didn't cause some of that. It more than likely had to have because the numbers shot up so much. But because our focus turned to this, 
we discovered stuff that we otherwise would have overlooked. Sometimes when you know what you're looking for, you find it. Um, whereas before you would have overlooked it. So uh, it's hard to say exactly how much it contributed, but it probably contributed at least to thyroid cancer uh, rates in the area. But otherwise, the harm to humans seemed to be fairly limited. Uh, the immediate area around the plant suffered a quick die-off, like within you know, 10 kilometers of the plant, there was a quick die-off around there, but it, it it recovered very quickly. Within the next year, it was starting to recover. Uh, this I'm talking about like things like plants and trees. And the uh, incidents didn't seem to, you know, contribute to long-lasting health effects in that area, at least not at a level that is easy to, to point at and say, this is evidence that this disaster uh, directly led to these results. There did happen to be a very powerful psychological impact on the region, largely fueled by the public perception of the effects of radiation. Essentially, if you're told over and over again that you're going to get sick and you're going to suffer, then you're going to believe that and you will get sick and you will suffer because it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that was a real issue. Today, Chernobyl's a tourist site. You can actually go there. The wildlife in the area has not only made a comeback, it's actually gotten better than it was from before the accident. There's greater biological diversity in the region than there was prior to the accident. Now, that's not because of radiation. It's not that radiation has suddenly magically helped animals get better. It's largely because people have stayed the hell away from Chernobyl. So if you take human beings out of an environment it tends to do better. I'm just going to leave that idea there. But since 2010, the Ukraine has led the way in resettling the area, though with some restrictions in place to protect settlers. So, for example, you're not supposed to use wood from the area in case it has uh, any radioactive material in that wood. And you're also supposed to check soil very thoroughly for contamination levels before you try and farm there. But we're starting to see some reclamation of the land around Chernobyl. And uh, that disaster is the greatest uh, for at least an immediate effect on people of all time for, for nuclear power plants. Our next one is an ongoing story. So it's impossible to say right now what the full effect of that disaster is because it's still playing out as I speak. But before I get to that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, this brings us to Fukushima in Japan. On March 11th, 2011, at 2.46 p.m., there was a massive earthquake off the coast of Japan. It measured nine on the Richter scale, which makes it the fourth largest earthquake ever recorded. The earthquake created a tsunami that was 15 meters tall at the point of Fukushima. That's just under 50 feet tall. Imagine, not a wave, but a wall of water, 50 feet tall. That hit the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility. And that natural disaster led to a terrible man-made disaster. The tsunami disabled the power supply and thus the cooling systems for three of the reactors at that facility. Reactors one, two, and three, in fact. 
the facility actually withstood the initial shock of the earthquake pretty well. The uh, the various inspections that have happened since this disaster have suggested that the earthquake did not really damage the facilities in any meaningful way. So that's kind of impressive. There were six reactors at Fukushima, but reactors four, five, and six were not in operation at the time of the earthquake. Um, at least reactor four did have a lot of nuclear material as part of that building because they have uh, waste fuel pools, storage pools, where you take the fuel you've used in the reactor that no longer has enough visible material in it for it to be useful. It's no longer going to produce efficient nuclear reactions. You have to put that somewhere. So generally speaking, right now, most nuclear facilities store nuclear waste on site. So uh, they were to go into cooling pools for a few years before being moved to a different facility. And so Reactor 4, while it was not active, did have uh, spent nuclear fuel inside these cooling pools. Anyway, when the tsunami hit, it shut down 12 of the 13 backup generators on site designed to run the residual heat removal system cooling pumps. And it also disabled the heat exchangers that would take heat from the reactor and transfer it to the ocean. To make matters worse, the seawater pumps on site that were designed to pump seawater off the system, they were there expressly in case there was a tsunami, were located at too low an elevation to be of any help. So when they designed the Fukushima Daiichi facility, they estimated a tsunami of 3.1 meters in height. So they positioned the seawater pumps at four meters above sea level because they said, oh, 3.1 meters, that's how high the tsunami would likely be. We'll go about a meter above that. The facility itself was at 10 meters above sea level. But because it was a 15-meter tsunami, it meant that those pumps were actually 11 meters below the water's surface when that tsunami hit. And they were all overwhelmed. Reactors 1, 2, and 3 could not moderate reactor core temperatures, and the cooling systems that could transfer excess heat were not operational. So the reactors had been shut down automatically after the earthquake, which is good. So they weren't in operation at that moment, but even in shutdown mode, there's still some residual fission reactions taking place. The reactor cores were producing about 1.5% of their nominal thermal power, but that heat was building up and it was beginning to convert water into steam and there was no way to transfer the heat away from the reactor cores. So they were just getting hotter and hotter. The steam vented out through safety valves into a primary containment vessel. So again, not just venting out into the general region. The steam included some hydrogen gas as well, which was generated from reactor reactions between the superheated zirconium cladding in the reactor core and the steam. And so you get this hydrogen gas as a byproduct. And as I mentioned before, hydrogen gas can be very dangerous. It's extremely you know, flammable or explosive. You can look at things like the Hindenburg disaster, which... Uh, happen because of a, a hydrogen disaster. Well, pressure inside these units continued to increase. Steam was directed into special suppression chambers that were located under these reactors. So you had these special chambers underneath that were meant to hold this kind of stuff in the case of an emergency. Um, 
water injection followed. That's where you, you know, obviously you introduce water into the system, uh, along with the initiation of the emergency core cooling system. So all measures were being put into place to try and get this reactor core temperature under control. But the water injection systems began to fail for each of those first three units. And so responders began to use fire pumps to inject more water into the reactors using fire trucks and fire hoses. And then they started using seawater, pumping seawater in to help inject into the reactors and cool them down. And this was all to keep the fuel submerged in water. But in unit one, that water level fell enough to expose the top of the fuel rods to air, and the reactions began to speed up. The water was not there to moderate those reactions. An hour and a half later, all of the fuel in Unit 1 had become uncovered because as it heated up, it obviously turned more of the water into steam. And while there was still water inside the vessel that contains the reactor core, all the fuel was open to the air at that point. The water was still in the base of the vessel, but the fuel was suspended above the base. So the temperature of the fuel inside Unit 1 climbed to around 2,800 degrees Celsius. It began to melt. It fell apart. The falling fuel landed into the water that was still pooled at the bottom of the reactor pressure vessel, and that helped actually bring temperatures down. The temperatures began to decrease once the melted fuel hit water again. Gases and steam were building up inside the reactor building, so attempts were made to vent the gases through an external system that would contain the gases so you wouldn't have radiated material release into the environment. But there was a backflow problem, and gases began to accumulate inside the reactor building itself, not just the reactor core. And one of those gases was hydrogen. And on March 12th, that hydrogen exploded on the service floor above the Unit 1 reactor. This destroyed the roof of the facility, and the fuel inside the reactor pressure vessel was later found to have melted through the vessel and had melted about 65 centimeters down into the concrete below the vessel. Now, that concrete was 2.6 meters thick, so it held firm, and the mass eventually cooled down enough to solidify. Units 2 and 3 had also had some nuclear fuel melt, but they appeared to be less affected than Unit 1 at that point. But then Unit 2's water injection systems failed, just as Unit 1 had, and the responders attempted to inject water from fire pumps and from seawater. This time they ventilated the building. They used a blowout panel near the top of the building to help avoid another hydrogen buildup, like in Unit 1. On March 15th, the pressure inside one of the containment systems beneath the reactor dropped after what was believed to be a hydrogen gas explosion. And the initial thought was that some sort of rupture must have happened. But investigations haven't really been able to turn up signs of a rupture. So there's still a lot of questions about what actually happened that day. But somewhere, pressure was released and some radioactive material was released into the environment on that day from Unit 2. Unit 3 seemed initially to have fared better, with responders able to inject water and ventilate the building. But on March 14th, there was an explosion inside Unit 4. Now remember, Unit 4 was defueled. There was no nuclear fuel inside the core of Unit 4. So why did it explode? Well, the hypothesis is that hydrogen forming from Unit 3 had reached Unit 4 by backflow because the two buildings 
the one for unit three and the one for unit four, shared a common duct system. So the thought is that the hydrogen gas must have passed through this duct system. It got into unit four. And while unit four didn't have any nuclear fuel in the reactor, it did have all this hydrogen gas buildup, and then there was an explosion. That explosion also further damaged the building that housed unit three. Now, out of all these events, the one that seemed to release the most radioactive material into the environment happened on March 15th from the issues with Unit 2. But the actual mechanism that led to that release still remains a mystery. The three units now receive cooling water from a special water plant supplying recycled water to the units. They have cooling circuits uh, to help do this. They are all being held at around atmospheric temperatures. So the temperature of the, the core is about the same as what it is outside. Uh, the government has also injected nitrogen into those units, and that was a, an attempt to capture hydrogen and prevent hydrogen gas from building up. Another challenge that had to be overcome was dealing with spent fuel, because as I said, each of the units has a waste fuel pond, and that provides cooling and moderation of spent fuel. Since the accident, there is now a new set of heat exchangers and cooling circuits attached to each unit to help keep those those cooling ponds cool enough, and arrangements have been made to remove and transport the spent fuel rods to a more permanent facility. Uh, typically, you keep them in the pool for a few years, and then you move them to air-cooled facilities once they've reached a certain level of uh, non-activity. And, uh, and so you kind of have to wait for things to cool down enough for you to be able to move them, and that's started to happen. So there's some good news and there's some bad news. And the good news is that the effects of radiation from the disaster appear to have had no real impact on human health in the area based upon the uh, various uh, research projects that have gone on since then. It doesn't look like there's been widespread negative impact on human health. The general region had been evacuated, but since 2012, the government has allowed people in small groups to come back uh, one at a time, like small groups at a time. But the bad news is that the radiation levels inside the facilities themselves are still really, really high, like deadly high in those facilities. And that contaminated water around the units is starting to seep into the ground in that area. Uh, now, it happens to be an area that's next to the ocean. So I guess immediate bright side is that it, the any water that seeps into the ground isn't going into the water table that serves up the water for the people there because the water is coming from further inland and it's flowing out to the ocean. But without containing that contaminated water properly, that could end up leaking into the ocean and contaminating ocean water and spread radiation quite far. Uh, there's still a lot of efforts going on in Japan to contain all of that. Uh, but I've read some pretty disturbing reports about the way it's all being handled and that it suggests that that way is not the most effective. Uh, so the plant decommissioning process is going on in Fukushima, and there's going to be a lot of different steps. It's probably going to take more than a decade of work to be able to bring those, those, uh, those buildings to a point where we can truly decommission them. So that's it. That's the look at three of the biggest nuclear power disasters. They're all bad, and, and people tragically lost their lives in the Chernobyl one in particular. Um, 
and they you never want to have any of these sort of incidents happen. Uh, they do suggest perhaps that in the event of a nuclear disaster like this, the impact might not be as dramatic, at least at first, as we tend to think. I mean, again, our thoughts are often shaped by stuff like pop culture. And in the 50s, you know, all the different science fiction films were all about how how radiation was going to mutate people in weird and, and unpredictable ways. The reality is that doesn't actually happen that way. In the long term, who knows? We may see long-term effects that are much more troubling than what we're seeing in the short term. So I'm not suggesting like, I'm not suggesting that people have overreacted to these disasters. Maybe Three Mile Island. Out of all of them, the result of Three Mile Island was, uh, still should never have happened, but at least it appears that in the grand scheme of things, it was not that dangerous to people uh, because these safety systems worked properly. Still shouldn't have happened. And it's still kind of scary, more than more than kind of scary. But uh, I wanted to look into them because you hear about these stories all the time and without really understanding what happened, then all you really feel is anxiety. Uh, I think the only way to really greet that is through education. And that education means, well, now I feel like I'm more informed with what can happen, what can go wrong with nuclear power. Maybe that guides my decision about whether or not I support it. That's totally legitimate. Uh, and I am no longer just imagining worst-case scenarios. That wraps up this episode. If you have any ideas for future episodes, uh, we will be going to something totally different from nuclear power next week. Uh, I'm not sure what that is because I don't have my schedule opened up, but it will be something different. So look forward to that. If you have suggestions for future episodes, let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget, go by tpublic.com slash techstuff to take a look at our merchandise store. Everything you purchase ends up benefiting the show, which is awesome, and you get some cool stuff in return. So go check that out. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.